I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on November 21st, 2021. Episode 44, Understanding Jury Trials Through Consideration of Legal Principles, Not Media Rhetoric. In today's environment, high-profile trials, particularly but not limited to criminal trials, are often used to sell false narratives about those involved and about the legal decisions made by the judges and juries and about the law itself. It's the media and public officials who all too often seize on a perceived opportunity to turn the outcome of a particular trial into some large-scale general indictment of the legal system. The prosecution of Kyle Rittenhouse is no exception and provides the perfect lens through which to analyze basic principles of our judicial system, as envisioned and originally created by our founders, and as expounded upon by court decisions and statutes. To discuss how trials actually work to minimize the risk of innocent parties being found guilty, and to ensure every defendant gets the process that is due before a government can impose a penalty. But let's start with what the media told us about what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on the night of August 25, 2020. After videos of the incidents in this case surfaced and the media began creating a narrative that could aid in its ratings, so many presumptions and judgments were made without full consideration of the facts and in total conflict with the video evidence that was even available at that time. Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show, decreed, No one drives to a city with guns because they love someone else's business so much. They do it because they are hoping to shoot someone. That's the only reason people like him, referring to Rittenhouse, join these gangs in the first place. Yes, I said it a gang, because this is not the Battle of Yorktown. It's a bunch of dudes threatening people with guns. Others immediately labeled Rittenhouse a vigilante, an avid supporter of the police, which at the time of the summer of 2020 was right when people were crying for defunding the police, and they labeled him a terrorist. Representative Ayanna Presley tweeted, A 17-year-old white supremacist domestic terrorist drove across state lines armed with an AR-15. He shot and killed two people who had assembled to affirm the value, dignity, and worth of black lives. Fix your damn headlines. Of course, the only truth in this tweet may be that Kyle Rittenhouse was 17 years old, and he did, unfortunately, end up shooting several people. 
Though at the time of this tweet, the circumstances and any motive remained unknown, at least in full, and there was absolutely no basis upon which to characterize him as a terrorist or a white supremacist. And Representative Presley was not alone. Representative Gwen Moore of Wisconsin also used Twitter to post the following. The same police department who shot an unarmed black man seven times in the back for walking away from them just let an armed white supremacist walk right past them after shooting people. And the Biden campaign at the time, not to be left out, ran a campaign ad that clearly linked Kyle Rittenhouse to white supremacy, a claim simply pulled out of thin air, just as the claim that persisted until nearly into the trial that Rittenhouse had carried a gun across state lines was completely fabricated. Even the Lake County State's Attorney's Office confirmed as early as October 2020 that the gun used by Rittenhouse was, in fact, never carried across state lines. Again and again, media and others claimed that Rittenhouse illegally possessed the weapon he was carrying. But the fact is, his possession of that weapon was legal. And the judge ultimately dropped that charge prior to sending the case to the jury for deliberation. In addition to mischaracterizing Kyle Rittenhouse and his actions and motives, the media also sainted those who had been shot as innocent protesters. When the truth is much more murky and ugly. The media was so intent on painting the events of the night of August 25th as another piece of evidence in the trial of America as systemically racist, labeling Rittenhouse a white supremacist from the beginning, that it couldn't see the facts, even though all involved were white. Even politicians, or I should say of course politicians, unsurprisingly got into the act of storytelling. Representative Karen Bass of California, once reportedly on President Biden's shortlist for vice president, claimed this case was definitely one about race. When asked in a CNN interview how there was a racial dimension to the shootings, Representative Bass explained, or failed to explain, by saying this. Well, because remember now, where were those white men that were killed? They were at a protest, protesting in solidarity for black folks. And she went on with her wild work of fiction. So, to me, it was reminiscent of the civil rights movement when you had young white people that participated in the sit-ins and the protests, and they were subject to beatings. They were subject to shootings. Many of them were killed as well. And she didn't stop there. Here you have a 17-year-old boy who was driven by his mother across state lines with an automatic weapon. Frankly, she should have been detained for child endangerment. To go to a protest where he says he's going to help the police? I mean, it was ridiculous. It was important for a political narrative to paint this shooting as further evidence of the deep racism of the United States and of the police. It was also important that any person, such as Rittenhouse, who appeared to support law enforcement and who had reportedly been an attendee at a Trump rally, be painted as an evil racist himself. As certainly in the minds of the left, only a deeply racist person could ever support Trump or law enforcement. And the left so often the political side seeking more protections for criminal defendants, was all too ready and willing to be judge, jury, and executioner in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse. The chatter was so loud that there simply was no scenario in which the prosecutors in Wisconsin could fail to bring charges against this horrible killer. Of course, the truth is quite different, as the trial demonstrated, and the truth is what is to be determined by a jury hearing all of the evidence in a courtroom. But the truth is rarely what is sought in the court of public opinion. From the public reports and official statements alone, it would seemingly come as no surprise, given the labeling of Mr. Rittenhouse as a terrorist and a white supremacist, that Kyle Rittenhouse, only 17 at the time of the alleged crimes, was indicted on a number of criminal offenses. 
The actual criminal complaint against him, filed just two days after the relevant incidents on August 27, 2020, charged him with the following, and I summarize, first-degree reckless homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, with a maximum prison sentence of 65 years. This charge is in connection with the death of Joseph D. Rosenbaum and requires a showing that Kyle Rittenhouse showed, quote, utter disregard for human life. First-degree recklessly endangering safety, use of a dangerous weapon, with a maximum sentence of 17 and a half years and a fine. This charge was in connection with the interaction of Kyle Rittenhouse with Richard McGinnis and also requires a showing of utter disregard for human life. First-degree intentional homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, with a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. For this charge, it must be proven that Kyle Rittenhouse intended to kill Anthony M. Huber. Attempted first-degree intentional homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, with a maximum sentence of 65 years, related to the death of Gage Grosskreutz, and requiring proof of Mr. Rittenhouse's intent to kill Mr. Grosskreutz. First-degree recklessly endangering safety, use of a dangerous weapon, with a maximum penalty of 17 and a half years, and possible fines related to a then-unknown victim. Possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18 with a maximum penalty of nine months and possible fines. The criminal complaint itself admits, unlike much of the corporate media coverage, that the situation in Kenosha was not peaceful protests. It was one of, quote, civil unrest with a curfew in place. Alleged victim Joseph Rosenbaum was shot at a business identified as Car Source that Kyle Rittenhouse had traveled to to provide some protection of that business's property. Further in the criminal complaint, it is stated that Rittenhouse was in possession of a Smith & Wesson AR-15 223 rifle, along with a 30-round magazine. This allegation was based on various video footage reviewed by law enforcement. Even in this criminal complaint, it is stated that Rosenbaum appeared to throw something at Rittenhouse, that shots were fired by someone else, and that Rosenbaum continued to, quote, approach Rittenhouse before more shots were fired and Rosenbaum was hit. A lot of the other information contained in the complaint appears to come almost directly from statements made by Richard McGinnis, a reporter who had been following Kyle Rittenhouse through the evening and interviewing him about what was happening. Further in the complaint, it is stated that after shooting Rosenbaum, Rittenhouse was seen on video running and that audio provided clues to the scene that was occurring, including people yelling, beat him up and get him, get that dude and get his ass, referring to Rittenhouse. Video also shows at least one man taking a swing at Kyle Rittenhouse, and at one point Rittenhouse trips and falls, at which point someone is seen jumping, quote, at and over Rittenhouse. Another person, Anthony Huber, is then seen approaching. The defendant who is this, and then the complaint goes on to say this, directly quoted, the defendant who is still on the ground on his back. Huber has a skateboard in his right hand. When Huber reaches Rittenhouse, it appears that he is reaching for the defendant's gun with his left hand as the skateboard makes contact with Rittenhouse's left shoulder. That occurs before shots are heard and Huber staggers and then falls. At this point again, remember these facts are what are alleged in the criminal complaint bringing these charges against Rittenhouse. At some point, the complaint, des complaint describes that Rittenhouse manages to get to a seated position as another person, Gage Grosskreutz, approaches him. Grosskreutz is shot in the right arm and appears again, according to the complaint, to, quote, be holding a handgun in his right hand when he was shot, end quote. This may be the point to discuss two key elements of our criminal system. The first is that every defendant is innocent until proven guilty. And the second is that proof of guilt must be beyond a reasonable doubt. These principles are not found in the United States Constitution expressly, though the Fifth and Sixth Amendment's protections of criminal defendants certainly come with a presumption, through the due process and rights to a speedy trial and counsel, that individuals do not come before the court with a presumption of guilt. 
But that is how it was presumed when it came to Kyle Rittenhouse and public statements of those, such as politicians, entertainers, and the media. But even reading the criminal complaint against Rittenhouse, where only the state's view is considered, it describes a scene where Rittenhouse was clearly in danger. In our judicial system, and in many systems before ours, it was an accepted legal maxim that those charged with crimes were presumed innocent. It may indeed date back to the Code of Hammurabi of ancient Babylonia, where the accuser had the burden of proving guilt. This concept extended through English common law and was an accepted principle of our founders. A statement of the concept of innocent until proven guilty may first formally be found in the Supreme Court's decision in Coffin versus the United States in 1894, where the court made it clear that it was an error for the lower court not to instruct the jury that the accused is presumed innocent until the prosecution proves guilt. And there is no doubt that this presumption of innocence is also one of the underpinnings of the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizures, against self-incrimination, and providing rights to counsel in a speedy trial. Connected to the presumption of innocence is that there must be sufficient evidence of guilt in our system that requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Though the Constitution does not contain the phrase reasonable doubt, our courts consistently consider it a fundamental principle of due process and one that was recognized as early as 1798. It may not, however, have been clearly required as a constitutional standard until the Supreme Court's 1970 opinion in Ray Winship, but it was not a new concept. Its origins date back to English common law, the source of much of our founders and our nation's legal understanding. It was not originally a standard to protect the accused, but became such as the founders realized that the government should not be able to penalize those it cannot prove are guilty of any wrong. In other words, it has at least some of its roots in Christianity and some in the ingenuity of our founders to provide individual protections for us all. As set out today, it's a well-entrenched U.S. legal doctrine that serves to protect the accused by requiring a level of competent evidence of guilt prior to conviction. But Kyle Rittenhouse, like many high-profile defendants recently, was not, at least in the court of public opinion, provided a presumption of innocence. Nor did the media or many of our elected officials look to find any competent evidence of guilt before condemning him as a murderer and a white supremacist, the latter for which there is still absolutely no evidence. Instead of entrusting our court system, society no longer looks to the rule of law and court rules for proper adjudication, but instead to whether conviction of the defendant seems just based on bad reporting and emotion. The law is intended to protect against just that, decision by emotion. And luckily, in this case, the law provided just that protection. Courtrooms have rules. Criminal laws have elements that must be proven. And a trial must be an orderly presentation of the evidence for consideration by non-biased jurors who have sworn to consider only that evidence and to uphold our legal system's values. In this trial, those observing the day-to-day proceedings have been exposed to a number of issues that continued to be misrepresented by the media and political figures because how the trial unfolded simply failed in every way to fit the preconceived narrative of these individuals and organizations. One of the most dramatic examples is of the judges having to chastise the prosecutor for suggesting, in front of the jury, that some evidence of guilt could be gleaned from Kyle Rittenhouse's silence after being taken into custody by police. Unlike the presumption of innocence and the reasonable doubt evidentiary standard, our individual right to remain silent in just this type of situation, and the fact that such silence cannot be evidence of guilt, is embodied in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which provides nor shall any person be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. 
This language embodies our individual right to remain silent and to trust that that silence not be used against us. But the prosecutor in the Rittenhouse trial, indisputably familiar with this legal principle, on cross-examination of Kyle Rittenhouse, suggested in, that his being quiet until that moment had some bearing or relevance on his guilt by asking the following questions. Since August 25th, 2020, this is the first time that you've told your story? That question was objected to. That objection was sustained, but the prosecutor didn't stop. He then asked, now you are telling us the, your side of the story for the first time, correct? These questions hung in the air with the clear implication that though Rittenhouse had the opportunity to speak with law enforcement, the media, and others, he waited until the trial to tell his story, only after hearing the prosecution witnesses' versions. This second question was asked, as I mentioned, after there had already been an objection that had been sustained by the judge. But the prosecutor needed a guilty verdict in this case, and he was clearly willing to do whatever it took to get one. The decision implicitly to refer to the defendant's silence until trial and the prosecution's attempt to solicit testimony from Rittenhouse about issues the judge had already ruled were not proper areas of inquiry led to quite the tongue lashing by the trial judge. But it wasn't just the blunders of the prosecution that made this trial interesting. The prosecution's own witnesses, including alleged victim Gage Grosskreutz, admitted in his testimony that he was only shot after pointing the gun he had at Rittenhouse. Video footage shows Rittenhouse discussing being pepper sprayed and not responding with his weapon because deadly force was not warranted. It was only, according in large part to the prosecution's own evidence, including various videos of the night in question, after Rittenhouse was threatened with serious bodily harm and possible death that he actually fired. Other issues, just by way of example, that arose during the trial and were publicly misrepresented or ignored include the following. That Rittenhouse illegally possessed the AR-15 he was carrying. In reality, the firearms charge was dismissed by the judge because the law at issue only outlaws minors from carrying short-barreled weapons. This is because the law was drafted and passed to address gang violence and the use of sawed-off shotguns, and by its own language, it did not make it illegal for Rittenhouse to carry the rifle he had that night. There was also an FBI drone video of the Kenosha riots. You know, those peaceful protests? It had been in the possession of the prosecution for who knows how long, and was only turned over to the defense later in the process. And then, it was a very fuzzy copy that appeared to be very different than the one the prosecution sought to use in the actual trial. And perhaps most ludicrously, that those who were shot were standing in peaceful solidarity with social justice protests continues to this day to be the theory of so many on the left, when the facts are clearly contrary to that position. What the media reported and continues to report is that Kyle Rittenhouse is some racist, white supremacist who traveled to Kenosha for the sole purpose of shooting people. That the judge in the case is also clearly a white supremacist who was on Rittenhouse's side and oversaw a biased trial. And that the alleged, quote, victims in this case were targeted because of their decision to help the likes of Black Lives Matter. To unravel how incredibly inaccurate those claims are, it may be necessary to start at the beginning of the situation in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Shortly after the death of George Floyd and the viral dissemination of the video of his detention that led to his death, protests, many of which quickly turned to riots, broke out in cities across the nation. Despite media claims that these were peaceful and justified protests, the damage tallies and death toll from these events tell a different story. And the outbreak of unrest in Kenosha was itself based on a media and political lie that an individual named Jacob Blake had been unlawfully shot by police while unarmed and due solely to his race. On August 23, 2020, police received a call from a woman in need of assistance in a domestic incident. 
a man with whom that victim had previously been involved and who had an outstanding arrest warrant for sexually assaulting this same woman, arrived at the woman's home and, as the situation unfolded, stole the keys to her rented SUV and attempted to flee police in the car with children inside. When confronted by law enforcement, Blake reached into the vehicle and came out holding a knife. He was shot, and though he survived, he was paralyzed, in, in part. A rush to judgment by media, organizations like Black Lives Matter, and politicians characterized this as yet more evidence of another racist shooting of an innocent black man by law enforcement. But Blake was far from innocent, and investigations at both the state and federal level concluded that the shooting was lawful. That did not stop crowds of people from taking to the streets of Kenosha, setting things on fire, destroying property, and generally acting unlawfully. Three of the people who decided to join the chaos were the following. 24-year-old Anthony Huber, a white male who was arrested in 2012 for domestic violence, use of a dangerous weapon, false imprisonment, battery, and strangling and suffocation, and who was convicted of the strangling and suffocation and false imprisonment charges, sentenced to two years, and while still on probation in 2018, was again arrested for domestic abuse, disorderly conduct, and battery, for which he was also convicted and sentenced to probation, from which he had only just been released in May of 2020. 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum, who was convicted or pled guilty to two counts of sexual conduct with a minor for which he was sentenced to 12 and a half years imprisonment, during which time he was anything but the model prisoner, acquiring 42 disciplinary infractions. After his release, he was further charged and convicted of a parole violation related to tampering with his monitoring device. And 26-year-old Gage Grosskreutz, who was no stranger to interactions with law enforcement, having been arrested and charged with felony burglary, trespass, theft, and disorderly conduct, and who admitted in his own testimony he himself unlawfully had a gun in his possession on the night of the events in question. To say these were heroes acting as allies of the Black Lives Matter movement is to distort the truth to such a degree that it is unrecognizable. That they had criminal records does not provide a basis for them to be shot but it does provide the proper framework within which to judge the rest of the evidence, including the fact that Joseph Rosenbaum admittedly taunted Rittenhouse, using the N-word, before trying to take Rittenhouse's gun, at which point he was shot, and that Grosskreutz was himself carrying a weapon that was pointed at Rittenhouse prior to Rittenhouse's firing upon him. And here are some of the statements about these individuals and about the situation, coming from those who sought to gain politically by pushing for prosecution and conviction of Rittenhouse. First, there is the prosecution's closing argument, where they compare these individuals to heroes trying to stop a mass shooting. It's to be expected the prosecution is going to have to paint them differently than as they were there in the business of prosecuting Rittenhouse. But it's also such an absurd comparison that one can only presume it did not resonate with the jury. And then there are these comments, generally about the trial. Gregory McKelvey, vice chair of the Oregon Democrats Black Caucus, tweeted this, Employers, consider giving your black employees a day or two off after the Rittenhouse verdict. Regardless of the outcome, it's going to be hard for black people to work, and it isn't fair to expect them to. Of course, again, everyone involved in the Rittenhouse trial is white, and it is unclear why that would entitle a racist response of time off for only those of one race, the race not even involved in this case. And as mentioned previously, Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass used the white-on-white violence involved in the Rittenhouse trial as racially relevant because it occurred, quote, at a protest, protesting in solidarity for black folks. And then there's Ben and Jerry's, a company that inexplicably comments on every political issue, though it should stick to ice cream. Th that company posted this. 
The Rittenhouse trial displays yet again that our justice system is racist. How would this trial be going if he was a black 17-year-old that crossed state lines illegally carrying an AR-15 and shot three white protesters? We need real justice in the legal system. This isn't it. Of course, this tweet merely repeats the false statements that Rittenhouse crossed state lines with a gun. After a full investigation, it was determined the gun never crossed state lines. But why, why use the facts in providing your opinion on this trial? The gun had actually been purchased, stored, and used only in the state of Wisconsin. CNN claimed the Rittenhouse trial, quote, represents the epitome of white privilege in America run amok. CBS Mornings tweeted after Rittenhouse's testimony, Kyle Rittenhouse testified in his murder trial yesterday, breaking down in tears as he told the jury he murdered two men at a Black Lives Matter protest last year in self-defense. Way to prejudge before the close of the evidence, CBS Mornings, since the entire legal issue is whether this was, in fact, murder or self-defense. And Nation Magazine's Eli Mistel made these outrageous and either ignorant or intentionally misleading con- comments. I don't have a crystal ball, all right? What I know is the law, and what I know is what white people are willing to do to defend white supremacy. Adding that the judge certainly provided, quote, the impression of a biased racist judge with his Trump rally cell phone that, he's, and that is trying to get Rittenhouse a walk. You know, that Trump rally cell phone, to which Mistel refers, was a phone with a rings, ringtone set to Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. And shockingly, Mistel was not the only public comment, commentator to draw some negative conclusions from the use of this patriotic song as the judge's ringtone. These are just a very small collection of all the comments trying to create the narrative and stick to it, no matter how the facts turned out in the trial, that this trial is about white supremacy and white privilege. That is simply ludicrous. The news media and politicians did what they have done so often recently, from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd to Jacob Blake. Whenever a black man is shot or killed by a white person, it's caught on video and shared wildly on social media. The only conclusion the ruling elite allows us to draw anymore from these situations is that the reason for that shooting was racism. And now, apparently, even when all those involved are white, it still must be about white supremacy and privilege. Because now, the left is set on pushing only one narrative, and that narrative is that the country is systemically racist and must be destroyed. The facts be damned. This is not justice. This does not include a presumption of innocence. And this does not hold the state to its burden of proof. This is mob rule, or at least attempted mob rule, and it threatens all of us. For if we cannot rely on the protections in our criminal system, tied to law and not emotion, we have little left to hold society together in these situations. And the lengths to which many went to attempt to bully the jurors and condemn the judge to get the outcome they deemed the only just one were really quite despicable. The worst of humanity came out during this trial. Judge Bruce Schroeder did his best with a televised trial and heated emotions to follow the law, to rule as he deemed proper, and to keep control of his courtroom. For that conduct, he has been targeted in horrible ways. This is despite the fact that his reputation was always to be friendly to defendants to ensure that their protections were in place. He did no differently in this trial. But here's what he was subjected to. A fax received at the Kenosha County Courthouse read as follows. This is outrageous. What fresh hell is this? Rittenhouse is a murderous thug and trying to protect him says a lot about this judge. We are watching. Enjoy your term, judge. It's going to be your last. If I ever meet you in person, I fully intend to spit directly into your face, regardless of the cost. You're disgusting. Other messages to the judge included wishing heinous homicide on his children, calling the judge a skinhead, and accusing him of secret membership in the KKK. 
This kind of outreach can be aimed at only one goal, attempting to bully the judge into ruling differently than the law required. Luckily, he was not bullied. And it was not just the judge who was targeted. Judge Schroeder actually had to remove MSNBC from his courtroom after learning that one of their freelance reporters was following the jury bus. Just as outside pressure likely influenced the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial, there can be no doubt that many outsiders would have loved to have found a way to influence this jury. And since they were not sequestered, it can only be presumed that they were well aware of the kind of hatred that may be thrust at them now that they have done their duty to reach a verdict based on the evidence and the law. Yet it will be declared by some of the loudest voices as the wrong verdict, regardless of the evidence presented in the trial and the jury instructions on the actual law. Just minutes after the not guilty verdicts were announced on all five counts, comments were already being made by news organizations and their followers, suggesting that Rittenhouse was only found not guilty because he is white. Of course, there's nothing upon which to base that claim, and anyone making that statement clearly didn't follow the trial as it unfolded. It is clear that the jury did, deliberating for days and sending questions that clearly suggested they carefully looked over the video evidence to see how the cascade of events unfolded last August, considered the evidence, and reached a unanimous verdict. But here are some of the immediate reactions to that decision. The NAACP tweeted, The verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse case is a travesty and fails to deliver justice on behalf of those who lost their lives as they peacefully assembled to protest against police brutality and violence. And NAACP president and CEO Derek Johnson posted on his own Twitter account. The verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is a reminder of the treacherous role white supremacy and privilege play within our justice system. Yet no one has rationally explained how the trial of a white teen who allegedly shot several other white men during admittedly criminal activity that included burning property and barricading off areas from law enforcement has any connection to white supremacy. These tweets fail to recognize that the jury was comprised of residents of Kenosha, who knew good and well that the protests last summer were anything but peaceful. The prosecutor made the same mistake in trying to recast those who were shot, from the thugs and criminals they were, to some sort of saints who were there in solidarity with some sort of equality movement. Of course, not to miss the chance to demonstrate her own ignorance about criminal trials, 1619 Project Fabricator Nicole Hannah-Jones had to forced this trial into her systemic racist claims about the nation, writing the following. In this country, you can even kill white people and get away with it if those white people are fighting for black lives. This is the legacy of 1619. I can't say it enough. No evidence exists that any of those Kyle Rittenhouse was forced to shoot or in any way invested in or marching for black lives or were there for any purpose but their own chaotic criminal enjoyment. Members of Anthony Huber's family issued a statement. Today's verdict means there is no accountability for the person who murdered our son. It sends the unacceptable message that armed civilians can show up in any town, incite violence, and then use the danger they have created to justify shooting people in the street. We hope that decent people will join us in forcefully rejecting that message and demanding more of our laws, our officials, and our justice system. I certainly cannot blame this individual's family for its response or be surprised by it. But that very response ignores the crimes committed on August 25th by Anthony Huber during those supposedly peaceful protests. It was not Kyle Rittenhouse who incited violence. Violence had overtaken the streets of Kenosha well before Rittenhouse arrived. And then there get to be even more ridiculous official statements. Governor Gavin Newsom rightfully was criticized for his tweet following the verdict that read, 
America today, you can break the law, carry around weapons built for a military, shoot and kill people and get away with it. That's the message we've just sent to armed vigilantes across the nation. Tweets like this one are mere admissions by the left that they understand neither weapons nor the law. An AR-15 is not a military weapon. It is one of the most common rifles and is used often for hunting. Responses like these also highlight the left's either unwillingness to admit or willingness to ignore and cover up the role their own pleas and policies to defund the police play in events like those that unfolded in Kenosha. Had law enforcement been fully staffed and not essentially forced to stand down in the face of the protests turned riots and had prevented the ongoing lawlessness, none of these events may have occurred. Kenosha's mayor admitted he didn't have enough people to quash the riots as thousands flooded into the city from elsewhere. He had turned down earlier offers to send in National Guard troops. But the left never acknowledges that its own policies and decisions may have caused the very harm they then try to recharacterize as some systemic failure. And then there's House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, who wants the federal government to intervene and demonstrates his willingness, against all evidence, to stick to the left's narrative that Kenosha was just a peaceful protest. He tweeted, This heartbreaking verdict is a miscarriage of justice and sets a dangerous precedent which justifies federal review by DOJ. Justice cannot tolerate armed persons crossing state lines looking for trouble while people engage in First Amendment-protected protest. The inaccuracies in this tweet are shocking. I guess they shouldn't be at this point. Kyle Rittenhouse was not armed when he crossed state lines. Crossing state lines alone is not illegal. The Second Amendment, always conveniently missing from any opinions from the left, protects our right to be armed. And those in Kenosha burning property and destroying things were no longer protected by First Amendment by the First Amendment as they were no longer peaceably assembled. And criticism of the verdict continued, as is to be expected, with Hollywood weighing in, again confirming that playing parts that may involve the justice system has not instilled in them any actual understanding of our laws or how the criminal trial process works. Bette Midler reacted by tweeting, and this is more proof that Twitter is indeed the best tool for revealing the true stupidity and ignorance of so many. Kyle Rittenhouse found not guilty, though we saw him kill too. Fundamentally stupid. I predict he will go on to a big career on Fox and in the radical right-wing circles, which counts as a plus with them. A tragic, tragic day for decent, thinking, feeling, ethical people everywhere. And similarly forgotten actress Rosanna Arquette put her ignorance on full display, posting, I have no faith in the justice system in America today. I don't want to live in a country that is ruled by violent, ignorant racists. She is, of course, welcome to leave the country at any time, but I've still not seen one shred of evidence that Kyle Rittenhouse is a racist. While there sure is at least some evidence that Joseph, Joseph Rosenbaum, who used the N-word repeatedly when threatening Rittenhouse, may be or have been. And not to be outdone, some of our social justice warrior overpaid athletes also appear to believe they are legal experts, with the likes of Bubba Wallace and Colin Kaepernick not missing their chances to opine on a court case they clearly didn't watch unfold in the courtroom, or if they watched, failed to understand. Kaepernick used his social media account to make this absurd and extreme assertion. We just witnessed a system built on white supremacy validate the terroristic acts of a white supremacist. This only further validates the need to abolish our current system. White supremacy cannot be reformed. Of course, I have said it over and over. There still remains absolutely no evidence any of these people have pointed to that Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist. But in the minds of today's left, all white people are, whether they know it or not, racists who cannot be reformed. Bubba Wallace took a different approach. 
the only one the left has remaining to try to fit this case into their always-present narrative that everything is about race, Wallace made the assertion. Ha, let the boy be black and it would have been life. Hell, he would have had his life taken before the bullshit trial. That statement is insane, of course. If any of these self-proclaimed social justice advocates would actually focus on the real risks to life for young black men, they might realize that they fall far more often victim to their own racist criminal actions than to any manufactured claims about white supremacy, white privilege, or racist law enforcement, and that there are any number of cases where black defendants are found not guilty when the evidence fails to prove that guilt. It is clear that none of these individuals is old enough to recall the result of the O.J. Simpson murder trial. The problem with so many who are reacting angrily or with disbelief or further accusations of cracks in our system is they clearly have not done what all juries have been asked to do, to view the evidence as it was presented, leaving any preconceived notions at the courthouse door, and considering even that evidence that counters your desired narrative or your preconceived notions. Lost was any understanding or willingness to accept that Rittenhouse was not to be presumed guilty, but to have been cloaked with the presumption of innocence. The law and self-defense would have had to be applied to the facts as shown by the evidence to decide whether that evidence supported the conclusion that Rittenhouse acted reasonably when believing his life was in danger and deciding to shoot to protect himself. Anyone honestly considering what we now know, having watched the trial, either could not reach a conclusion different than that of the jury or would at least have to admit that the jury had a basis on which to reach the verdicts that it did. The other problem these reactions to the verdict highlight is the true power of mainstream media. The media quickly jumped to the conclusion, almost immediately after the shootings, that Rittenhouse was a white supremacist who carried an illegal firearm across state lines in order to shoot people. Sadly, too many simply cannot admit they were wrong when confronted with the actual facts. Despite the evidence in the trial demonstrating these initial reports to be untrue, they remain accepted as fact by many and repeated over and over. As my family has often joked, though it is less funny in today's political climate. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. The good news for us is that our legal system is set up to allow defendants to have the facts actually presented and to have an unbiased jury consider them before guilt can be determined. And in this case, that legal system worked. As always, thank you for listening. Recent years have come with loud and inaccurate claims that our systems, including our justice system, are systemically racist and in need of reform or even total destruction. These claims are motivated by politics and anti-American sentiment, but they threaten real harm. When those in positions of power send messages that our systems cannot be trusted, then those very systems cannot work properly. When left as designed and subject to properly enacted laws, however, they do work. So why would so many want to tear them down, and at the expense of justice for those who actually are on trial in relevant cases? It apparently no longer matters whether an individual gets justice. The left is no longer protecting individuals. It protects groups. And groups only gain and keep power when they can be pitted one against the other. Here in the Rittenhouse trial, despite all involved being white, it was the pitting of white against black by merely labeling the defendant with no evidence of any racial animus on the part of himself, a white supremacist. We have seen this strategy before, where Derek Chauvin was also so labeled, despite no evidence of any racism on his part. But call it racist, and it shall be. Alexis de Tocqueville recognized this type of groupthink and group-based equality as a problem, the one that strives to make men equal not in success but in failure. He wrote, There is, in fact, a manly and legitimate passion for equality that spurs all men to wish to be strong and esteemed. 
this passion tends to elevate the lesser to the rank of the greater. But one also finds in the human heart a depraved taste for equality, which impels the weak to want to bring the strong down to their level, and which reduces men to preferring equality in servitude to inequality in freedom. We are witnessing today a segment of our country seeking to bring us all down in the name of equality, rather than working to elevate individuals. Next week, I will discuss vaccine mandates, the history of vaccines in medicine, when they've been required and why, what constitutional and other legal issues are raised with either the government or a private entity requiring vaccination, and the status of current court challenges to the Biden administration's OSHA mandatory vaccination rule for employers. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solace Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales' Scepter. Copyright 2021.